before I make much progress, I want to talk to you tonight about a resource regarding the intersection of health and Bible data. And that is the website audioverse.org. Audio, A-U-D-I-O-V-E-R-S-E dot O-R-G. Has lectures by nearly 40 physicians on the issue of health and its relation to the spiritual life and to Bible truth. Lectures from everything from how to overcome depression to issues dealing with diabetes, learning how to, to face end-of-life issues sensibly, questions about diet. Anyway, what's that uh, resource? Audioverse.org. Let me just give you a moment. What you have in front of you, this health and a biblical perspective, is a uh, kind of like an outline of ideas that you find in the Bible. It isn't the ideas themselves, because the Bible has far more information about health than what could be presented in a short lecture. But I want to go over a few things. I think you can see one of them here. What the Bible says about health is a strong evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. I don't know if you're aware of the history of health and science to however much degree you may or may not know. I'm a beneficiary of modern health science. Louis Pasteur, who invented the vaccine for rabies, saved, that vaccine saved my life. I was bitten by a rabid bat when I was an infant. So I can appreciate modern medicine. But you go back before Pasteur, back even before the period of the Romans, and you find even the people of Europe and of the, near the Caucasus Mountains, their ideas about health were similar to what you find in the jungles of Borneo today. That is, in many parts of the world today, you find people that when they get sick, they think it's because a spirit has cursed them. When they get leprosy, they think it's because someone has put a spell on them. When they end up uh, having a baby die, they believe that that's because the spirits have attacked them. And they have no idea about hygiene, no idea about germs, no concept of quarantine. No concept of even how to deal with their excrement. I've been in India, and in India, I don't know if you know this, some of you here know me a little bit, I like to watch birds, and uh, the way to see birds in many parts of the world is to go off the beaten path. I learned in India it's risky, because in India the people just take two or three steps off the path, and that is where they use the restroom, beside the roads. And because that excrement is so close to where they live and walk and breathe, many diseases that we never see here are prevalent in the part of India where I was. What I'm trying to tell you is that a knowledge about germs, about uh, viral infections, a knowledge about hygiene and cleanliness saves us the six of us here, from so much misery. But go back to the Bible, and you'll find that when God was speaking to ignorant slaves, slaves that were leaving Egypt, that had no idea about germs, had no concept of any of these things, 
He gave them instructions. He told them, when you need to use the restroom, take a shovel with you. Go outside of the camp, dig a hole, and bury it. He told them, when someone gets an infectious illness, put them in a quarantine and watch them for several days to see if it goes away or if it's changing. If it stays or grows, leave them there. If it ends up being something that you can't cure, like leprosy, keep them outside of the camp. So that God introduced quarantine into the mobile Israelite camp. Don't think that this was a knowledge that was extant outside of Israel. Maybe those of you who've read the Bible remember the story about that little girl, Naaman's servant. Uh, Naaman was a general of the Syrians. He had leprosy. Did he have to go outside the camp? No, he lived at the palace. He worshipped with the king. His infectious illness was right there near other people who could be infected. What I'm trying to tell you, in harmony with what is on your paper, is that there are several evidences regarding hygiene that prove that someone with a knowledge thousands of years beyond Moses' time inspired the writings of Moses. God made it requisite for his presence that they would take regular baths. To you, that might sound normal because you have hot water and you take a bath once or twice a day. But there are many parts of the world today where people take baths once a week or once every three weeks where people don't have running water. The Israelites did not have running water. For them to take a bath was difficult. It was hard work. And if they had been left to themselves, that would have been a rare experience. But God required them to take a bath every evening after, if they would have a sexual encounter with their spouse, they had to take a bath. If they would touch a corpse, they had to take a bath. If they would be near anyone who was in, had an infectious illness, they had to take a bath and they had to wash their clothes. I don't know if you can see it, but this is a level of wisdom that you just can't understand until you know what you know about germs. It was less than 300 years ago that doctors and nurses began washing their hands before they treated patients. Look at the second line there, evidence of God's design. The illnesses that hurt people in America and Australia and Europe today, the primary ones are cancers and heart disease, diabetes, arterial sclerosis. These are the biggies, and growing ones include a number of autoimmune disorders like lupus and some illnesses like Lyme that are carried by insects. Those first four I mentioned though, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, I don't know if I even mentioned stroke, but uh, those four are entirely preventable. When I say cancer is entirely preventable, that's an exaggeration. Let me take that back. Cancer cells form in every one of our bodies every day. Cancer cells are not rare developments in humans, they're continuous developments. But cancer cells are eaten by our large white blood cells. 
And this is why even though you develop cancer probably 20 times today, you don't have cancer. It's because that cancer cell was promptly executed. But when you practice a certain set of health principles, the likelihood of you developing cancer goes down dramatically. In this uh, magazine here, you have references. I think some of you have this magazine that show, for example, just eating, or excuse me, just having regular physical exercise with a certain level of exertion decreases the likelihood of a man getting prostate cancer by 74%. That's one element, just exercise. For a woman, that same level of exercise reduces her chance of getting breast cancer 37%. That means where you would have 12 ladies getting it without exercise, you'd only have eight getting it with exercise. If 12 ladies exercise, it would save the lives of four of them. That's only one element. When I said 12 ladies exercise, it would save the lives of four of them. I mean, if 12 ladies that were doomed to get breast cancer exercised. Uh, that, anyway, I think you follow what I'm trying to say. That original diet, you see there under evidence of God's design, the original diet of fruits, nuts, and grains, and later vegetables, ready veggies, I hope you don't mind that I say that, that vegetables were added in chapter 3 of Genesis, they weren't in chapter 1 or 2, but that particular diet all by itself, if you just eat that way, the simple, unrefined diet of fruits, nuts, and grains, the chance of you eating enough to become obese is almost nil. To eat enough to become obese, you need refined foods because whole grains and whole fruits are satiating. They fill you up and they make it hard to overeat. Uh, to overeat, you need desserts and processed grains and fatty things. Can any of you just imagine how hard it would be to overeat the simplest of foods? I'm not going to ask you to think that through. You probably can't imagine it because you've never tried it for a while. The original diet matches the needs of the body to such an extent that the person who wrote Genesis either understood how to prevent cancer, diabetes, stroke, and these other things, or else he just randomly hit on the right diet to accomplish that. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That the diet that is in Genesis works in uncanny ways only being discovered in 2014. What about the issue of clean and unclean animals? I'm not going to ask you if you've seen the movie Noah, or is it called The Flood? Noah. I haven't seen it, but if you have, I guess I am sort of asking you, the animals that went into the ark, did they all go in by two or did some of them go in by seven? Maybe none of you saw it. Well then, you, I don't know, and you don't know, and we don't know. But in Genesis, when the animals go into the ark, the clean animals go in by seven, but the unclean animals go in by two. And when they come out of the ark, that is when God introduces the idea of eating meat. Now, do you see right away what happens if they decide in their meat eating that they're going to eat one of the unclean animals? 
you have instant extirpation of the species, instant extinction. Because if you have two and you take one, you have no more breeding pairs, right? Very apparently, God made provision so when they got out of the ark and there was no cultivated fields of grain, no mature fruit trees, no vegetable gardens ready to go, you know, they can't wait five years to start eating. So what did he tell them? He said, now you can eat meat. Very apparently, just by what he said about who went in and out of the ark, they were going to eat the clean meats. But when you come to the next book of the Bible, it becomes more explicit. You, I mean, two books later, in Numbers 11, God describes which of those animals were the clean ones that went into the ark and which were the unclean. Now, whoever wrote Leviticus 11, either he knew more than the PhDs of 1905 or else he just randomly got it right. Because the animals identified as clean are animals that in the food chain are at the second or third tier. They are the grain eaters or the insect eaters. And the animals that eat the carrion or that eat the refuse or that are the cleanup animals, those animals that are at the bottom of the food chain, those are the unclean animals. I'm talking about the catfish, the pig, the dog, the vulture, the raven, the eagle. Now, all these things will eat what they find. How could the person who wrote Leviticus 11 realize that that low end of the food chain, or maybe you want to call it top end, whichever way you want to think of the food chain, but those animals that eat the refuse and the carrion, how could the, the author realize that those are the animals that accumulate heavy metals? Do you know what I mean by accumulate heavy metals? I mean that when you have a bunch of little fish, and they each have a little bit of mercury, and then a big fish eats all of them, that big fish, he uses up their energy, he excretes a lot of stuff, but the thing he can't really excrete is the mercury. Heavy metals get stored in our fat tissue, they are not removed well by our kidneys. When that fish gets eaten by the larger fish, the same thing happens. And when that larger fish gets eaten by the bear or by the eagle, the same thing happens to the bear and the eagle. Now, nothing eats the bear and nothing eats the eagle. But the bear and the eagle are continuously eating animals that have heavy metals in them so that the bear and the eagle fill up with toxicity. The same thing happens to the catfish. The same thing happens to, to the pigs. Do you see what I mean when I say that there's evidence in Leviticus 11 for the inspiration of the Bible? No one could have known that, even in the time of Jesus, much less 2,000 years before. When you see there this term, new start, maybe that was introduced last week, I don't know, by uh, Sister Judy. But that's an acronym. You won't remember it, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. It stands for Nutrition, Exercise, Water. That's those, the word new, nutrition, exercise, water. Those are the big things. If you clean yourself up, you drink lots of water, you end up uh, eating well God's original diet, and you make sure you get plenty of exercise, 
just those three things will save you from an immense amount of disease. But start, that is sunshine, temperance, that's self-control, air, that is fresh air, rest, and then learning to depend on God, to trust him. That's where we get this acronym, New Start. The ideas of New Start are taught in the Bible. The Bible models the kind of environment that God created you to be in. When you're gardening, uh, my fingernails don't look too dirty right now because I took a shower just recently. But I was in the garden today. And when I was in the garden today, I got fresh air, I got exercise, I ended up getting plenty of sunshine. I went inside and I drank my water. All of those ideas are now known to be an important component, not only in physical health, but in mental health. People who struggle with depression, if you struggle with depression, if you will just try these three things, get to sleep early, drink plenty of water, and stop drinking sugary drinks, and get on a regular exercise routine, those simple three ideas will resolve most cases of depression without even solving your depressing problems. They don't make your problems go away, but they increase your potential for handling them emotionally. Look at that last section under evidence. Do you see disease and its causes? The Bible teaches that uh, we should avoid drunkenness and gluttony. It requires us to use hygiene. I'm in the right column there. It models for us country living. In fact, in the Bible, it's the rebels who start cities, and God asks people to spread out into the countryside. The name of the first city uh, was named, uh-oh, I forgot it. But Cain's the one who named it after one of his sons. Physical exertion is mandated in the Bible. It's even in the, the Garden of Eden. You remember what the curse says to man? By the sweat of your brow, you should eat bread. What it's saying is, don't seek for a desk job. If you're going to get a desk job, make sure you have a garden. You need to have some exertion to connect with your eating if your body's going to function at the most optimum level. And then the Bible recommends morality. So I'm married. My wife and I are, uh, we live as a married couple in an intimate way. But even though we have plenty of sexual gratification, neither one of us has any concern about sexually transmitted diseases. Why aren't we worried? It's because we are the only people either one of us will ever have an experience with. When the Bible teaches that high level of morality, it entirely provided an end to the spread of gonorrhea and AIDS and syphilis and quite a number of illnesses. In other words, those illnesses would come to a natural end if only mankind practiced morality. 
What I'm trying to say under this evidence section, and I've said it several times, I'm almost done with this first thought, is that when the Bible teaches us how to live, how is it that each one of these elements about how to live in such varied fields of our life, when you put them together, they end up producing a life that is more healthy, more peaceful, greater longevity, and less diseased. God was able to accomplish this for Israel without them understanding what we understand. Do you have Bibles with you? I know you have computers, and some of those computers have Bibles. If you have a Bible, look at Exodus 15. Exodus 15 and verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. I'll read distinctly. This is uh, just before the children of Israel began having manna. It says, And when they came to Marah, that's a place, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of the place was Marah. In other words, they were traveling and they were thirsty, and they came to an area that had water, and they were happy until they tasted the water, and they found out it's not drinkable. And when they... And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he, that is Moses, cried to the Lord and said, And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Don't close your Bible yet, but what I want you to see here is that they had a practical problem. They came to waters that were toxic. They complained to God, and God, instead of zapping the waters, he showed them a type of plant that used properly would end up taking away the noxious elements from the water. Do you know that is how most medications work today? I don't know if most is right, but a large volume of medications are extractions from plants. And when used properly, they end up causing or changing things in such a way as to take away problems. Now look at the next verse. And said, this is what God said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals you. That's incredible. Mummies show us the kind of diseases that Egyptian wealthy people had. And the wealthy people of Egypt had arthritis, heart disease, cancer, in diabetes. They had the same illnesses that we have today. They had the same ones because they had the same kind of lifestyle. They were eating a high meat diet with lots of uh, luxurious oily substances. They liked those things and the wealthy people could afford those things. Good to see you. We're halfway through that paper, and everyone here should be able to explain to you the rest of it. So the Egyptians had these illnesses, 
And because they had these illnesses when they died, we see the evidence in the pyramids in their coffins when we examine the mummies. What did God say about those illnesses? He said, if you will follow my ways, I will not put these diseases on you that have come on the Egyptians. Now, this is an old passage. Exodus 15 is an ancient text. But you go and you eat the way Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy recommend. That means when you eat your deer meat, your clean meat, that you thoroughly bleed the animal and cut off the fat. That means you thoroughly cook the meat. It means you thoroughly bleed any kind of animal that you're going to eat thoroughly before you consider eating it. You practice what's written there in Genesis. You eat a simple whole grain diet, whole fruits, and you're not going to have those illnesses that came on the Egyptians. Let's move now to the second section, the stewardship of the body. When we talk about health from a Bible perspective, it's not all about God's wisdom. Part of it is about our responsibility, and we have some. Uh, let's look at a few things in 1 Corinthians. If you have Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have Bibles with you, listen carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's a simple idea. When I'm traveling to a Hindu country, I often see little shrines to the Hindu idols. I've seen hundreds of those. And I'll see the idol inside the shrine, and often there's food that's been offered there. But it's one of the cleaner places. There might be trash everywhere on the street, but the shrine is kept nicely. Why? Because if I were to take my trash bag and put it in the shrine... I would be facing execution by Hindu idolaters. What would they think of me putting a trash bag in the shrine? They'd consider that to be desecration of a holy place. Do you follow where they come from in that? I'm trying to illustrate for you what it's like when we smoke. If we use a, a cigarette, we are putting trash into a temple but not a temple of an idol. It's a temple of a living God. Drunkenness, the use of drugs, smoking, a number of other things you could do, even practices of promiscuity, that is, of immorality. These kind of activities are an affront to the spirit that lives inside of us. And it's because the Spirit lives inside of us that I have a responsibility to live in a way that's an honor to the Spirit. You're in chapter 3. Now look at chapter 4. It's probably there on the same page for you. Chapter 4 and verse 2. 
Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. What is a steward? A steward is someone who doesn't own the thing that he cares for. That is, a man of means may lend his car to someone and say, take care of it. The man taking care of it doesn't own the car, but he's a steward of the car. If you own a business, but you have a manager run it, that manager is something like a steward. He's responsible for the business, and you just reap the results. But if he runs it into the ground, you're going to hold him accountable. Well, probably you're just going to fire him, because that's probably all you can do here in the United States. Look at chapter 6. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. It says, What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Verse 20 says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The idea is simple. The idea in chapter 3 is that I am a steward because I am taking care of God's temple. The idea in chapter 6 is that my body doesn't even belong to me. So when someone says, don't talk to me about that, that's my decision. Or that's my choice about how I want to live or how I want to eat. Well, I'll let you go. I won't bother you. But you're wrong. It's not your decision. And, I mean, it's your decision, but it's not your decision in the sense of that you have no moral obligation to do anything. You don't own yourself. The one who owns you has already decided what you should do. And if you don't follow through, well, it's required in stewards that they be found faithful. And what did we read in chapter 3? What will God do to those that defile the temple? Chapter 3 says they'll be destroyed. That makes good sense to me. It makes good sense to me that if I show disrespect to God all my life, that I'm not going to be ushered into the kingdom of heaven to show disrespect to him there. But when I say that I belong to God, I don't want to give the picture that as a steward that God is watching out to catch me mistreating myself, like he's anxious or has anxiety to try to put me into the flames of hell. Not at all. God cares for his personal property. And what does he want from this personal property? He wants me to be healthy. He wants me to be productive. He wants me, if I'm going to live to 90, to not spend the last 20 years in a nursing home or 30. What I'm saying by that is you can't judge the Bible's teaching entirely on the basis of longevity. People that follow the Bible's rules on health, they live about 10 years longer than those who don't. But the story is not entirely included in those 10 years. Because my grandma, who's 94 right now, lives in her own home. And she sleeps in her own bed. And she walks around without a walker. But those, her neighbors, who went to the nursing home 15 years ago, even if they're still living today, those 15 years have not been for them what they've been for my grandmother. 
Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? That there's something to be said about having health and strength to, as your days, so shall your strength be. That's the Bible promise. I'm thinking right now about Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was that young man who gave a good report in Numbers 14. So he was told that he would enter Canaan 40 years later. 40 years later, after all of the people that he grew up with had died, everyone except Joshua, he and Joshua were the only ones that went into Canaan. But you know, when they went into Canaan, they were already almost 80 years old. You know, it's kind of old. But Caleb chose as his inheritance a mountain that was full of a very large race of humans, the Anakim. He said, I want that mountain. And in his 80s, he went there and took it. The Bible speaks about men who, when they were very old, more than 100 years old, it says that their eyes were not dim. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you that when I say I don't own my body, what I'm really saying is that the one who made my body has plans for the body. He wants to give me a long life of service for him, a useful life of service, and he has gone through the trouble of teaching me how to live in the Bible. And it's because I ignore his instructions that I end up getting diabetes. And then I go to a faith healer and say, heal me. And I'll tell you, if you get healed, it isn't God that healed you. God will heal you from diabetes. He'll tell you to start eating small suppers, go to bed and get exercise. That'll do it for type 2, not type 1. But type 2 diabetes, you just take a couple years of a good exercise program, small suppers, early to bed, no snacks in between meals, vegetarian diet, those things are right there, and diabetes is reversed. Whose body is it? It's God's body. And he intends that we will live in a way that is an honor to him, and then he will honor us with lawn life. 3 John, verse 2, is on your paper. Even if you don't have a Bible, you can see it there. It's below the, it's in the left peach column, uh, about halfway down. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. That's what God wants for us. Not just longevity, but that we'd have a spiritual life that would measure with our spiritual life. Look at the key passages there on the left-hand side. We've talked about Exodus 15, Leviticus 11, the passages in 1 Corinthians. Now, we haven't looked at 1 Corinthians 10.31 yet, but for time's sake, I'm just going to tell you what's there. That's the verse that says... Whatsoever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We haven't looked at any of these passages in Proverbs, and you can look at them later, but I'm going to tell you some of what you're going to find there. The Proverbs talk about the connection between your mental state and your physical state. 
about how when you are at peace and happy and have cheerfulness, how that helps you with your physical health. That is so far ahead of its time. It's now that people are learning that depression is a, a risk factor for nearly every type of disease. Depression increases your chance of getting cancer. It increases your chance of getting heart disease. It increases your chance of having kidney failure. That depression is hard on your system. But that's in Proverbs. The Bible does more than tell you that cheerfulness is like medicine. It teaches you how to be a cheerful person. We've made references to Genesis, but Daniel 1.9 is about a story. That's the story of Daniel. I think Daniel is a model for the end of time. His book is all about the end of time. Daniel knows about the laws that we've been talking about. He's not about to eat meat that has not been thoroughly bled and defatted. He's not about to eat unclean meat. He's not about to drink any alcohol. He's part of the royal family, and the royalty were not permitted to drink any alcohol at all. He's not willing to do those things, but Daniel is a slave. Listen, you think you're under intense pressure to do the wrong thing? You think if you do the right thing, you're going to lose your position in college, or you're going to lose your job, or you're going to lose your boyfriend, or you're going to uh, be a pauper for the rest? You think it's going to be hard for you if you do the right thing? Daniel can die if he does the right thing. But he purposes in his heart that he will not defile himself. This is what it says in Daniel 1. Daniel says, I purposed in my heart that I would not defile myself with the portion of the king's meat. And once he'd made that internal decision, I'm not going to do the wrong thing no matter what, then with courtesy and politeness, he went to the important persons in his life and said, please, I want to be conscientious. They didn't just buckle and say, okay, you can do it, Daniel. They said, no way. So he said, try me for 10 days and see how it goes. So they gave him a 10-day trial. And at the end of the 10-day trial, it was found that these men, he and his friends that would not drink and would not defile themselves, God blessed them with a higher level of comprehension, with a more strengthened constitution. The Babylonians could see that these were a higher quality of people. That's a model for us. Because today, even in our little group here, I think many of us are going to be tested in the next few days, weeks, or months, or years with a trial where to serve God is going to look like it's a dead end on our career. I say we because you're all at the age when you're about to get a career. And I know the way the devil works. The devil will come to one of you and say, if you will just be willing to violate God's law, you can have what you want. Well, Daniel wants for you. Because Daniel stuck with what God said, and he ended up being put in a place that slaves never went as the prime minister of Babylon. What did you say? I thought you were going to say lion's den. A lion's den? Yeah. Yeah, so faithfulness kept him out of the lion's den. It sure did. And that's 
in chapter 6, and I'm thinking right here about chapter 1, but it was faithfulness in both stories, wasn't it? Him being willing to do what was right no matter what the serious consequence would be. Some people say that those laws back there in the Old Testament about how you live and how you eat, that they don't apply anymore today. And I just want you to know that when the issue came up in the book of Acts about which of the Old Testament laws do we have to keep, in Acts 15, they chose the ones that Gentiles would have to keep. You know who the Gentiles are? That's you, 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 me, you, and you, I think. Any Jews here? All right, so we're it. We're Gentiles. And the laws for us are don't eat food offered to idols, but then we're not to eat things that have been strangled. Why not things that have been strangled? They haven't been bled properly. So you have the, many of the toxins and dangerous agents are carried in the blood. Well, they're not going to taste as good. That's why the heathen strangled their animals, because blood tastes good. I had Jehovah's Witness studying with me once, and you know, they won't take transfusions, but they eat red meat. I let them know there wasn't a more inconsistent position in the entire Bible. When God said, don't eat the blood, it's because it causes disease. But they eat the blood, get the disease, and won't take the transfusion that will save their life? I don't, I don't know if you get it. What I'm trying to tell you is that Acts 15 shows that when God gives health principles to the Hebrews, it's not like he expects everyone else to just treat their bodies like a dump can, a, a garbage bag. When he gives principles about how to live, he expects us, when we see the wisdom in them, to choose the wisdom for ourselves. All right, and you can read Isaiah 58 in your own time, 6 to 8. It ends with a promise that says, Then your health will spring forth speedily. But the conditions are before the promise, and when you meet the conditions, you can claim that promise. And that's a beautiful intersection of health in the Bible. Now in our last two or three minutes, does anyone here have a question? Something you'd like to ask or something you'd like to know? And I'll give you just a moment. And if not, I know your question. I'll just say it for the microphone here. So Chris is asking, well, the meat that is found in the, at Walmart, is that bled properly or is it uh, <clears throat> proscribed by Acts 15 and, and uh, Genesis 9? The answer is it's proscribed by Genesis 9 and Exodus 15. The truth is that very... Jews want properly bled meat, and so you can find sometimes if you're in New York, I don't know if you're going to find any here, sometimes you can find it, but frankly, we live in an age of transportation that makes ready veggies a sensible organization. Because if I go to Mongolia, I'm probably not going to stay a vegetarian if I live in the rural areas. In the rural areas of Mongolia, I need yak meat, and I need yak milk, and I need yak white cheeses, because I'm not going to get enough nutrients from the dried herbs that I can find that the, that the yak eat. And that's the way it was in Genesis 9, after the flood. But now come here to Arkadelphia, and I can have at one meal 
I can have bananas and blueberries at the same meal. Do you realize that kings never had that 200 years ago? Blueberries and bananas at the same meal? Because blueberries are only in the north and bananas are only in the south. But we can have them both here so that it's easy for us to eat a healthy diet even if we avoid all that bloody stuff. So maybe since you didn't ask, I'll just make the punchline and quit. If you here make catfish or pork or ham, which of course are quite related, aren't they? Or any other version of dead pig, if you make those part of your diet, you should study Leviticus 11 tonight. It's very plain there that God says it's an abomination to eat those things. And you, your body, does it belong to you? It does not. Does God want you to have a healthy, happy life? He does. Well, does that mean you might have to deny yourself sometimes? Why, that is the entire concept of taking up your cross. Jesus said, let a man deny who? Himself. Take up his cross and follow me. So here's Jesus, our Savior, on the cross. He's in a lot of pain. And they offer him a sponge filled with liquids that would cloud his senses, but would also uh, take away some of his pain. Do you know Jesus refuses it? That's that passage there, Matthew 27, 34. He refuses it because his body is not his. His mind belongs to his father, and he's not about to allow his mind to be clouded when he needs to have his thoughts together. It's a short time after that that he says it is finished. We wouldn't want, before our life ends, to go ahead and accept that sponge. We want to take up our cross and follow him, do what's right to the very end. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that your Bible is so clear. I'm sorry that we've given so little attention to it. Thank you for showing a way that we can be healthy and happy and productive. And I ask for each one here that you would guide them into that experience. I ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.